0: Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. The following story contains material that may be offensive and emotionally disturbing, and may not be suitable for all ages.
1: Listener discretion is advised. This is An Eye for a Killing, the true story of Scotland's most notorious serial killers, Burke and Hare. Episode 5, The Reckoning. Christmas Day morning, 1828. At the High Court in Edinburgh, the jury is out in the trial of William Burke and Helen MacDougall. They are accused of the murder of Madge Docherty, an elderly Irish woman whose body was sold to the anatomist Dr Robert Knox and was later found stuffed in a box. What the jury doesn't know is that William Burke has confessed to 15 other murders in a 10-month killing spree and that all the bodies were sold to the anatomist for cash. Burke's partner in crime, William Hare, has turned King's evidence, testifying against Burke and is now exempt from prosecution. The jury returns from its deliberations.
2: Court, Foreman of the jury, have you reached a verdict?
3: We have. We find William Burke guilty. Mm.
1: The charge against Helen McDougall is not proven. The word passed down over nearly 200 years is that at this point, Burke turned to McDougall and said, you're out of the scrape. That could be true. What is in the official records is the address to the jury of the Lord Justice Clark, David Boyle.
4: While I return you the thanks of the court for the unwearied pains and attention you have bestowed on this case, it must be satisfactory for you to know that it is the opinion of the court that your verdict appears to be perfectly well-founded. Entertaining, as you did, doubts of the guilt of the female prisoner, you gave her the benefit of those doubts. It is my colleague on the bench, Lord Meadowbank's, duty to propose sentence... I say
0: that in the history of this country, nay, in the whole history of civilised society, there never has been exhibited such a system of barbarous and savage iniquity or anything at all corresponding in atrocity to what this trial has brought to light.
1: To hear Lord Meadowbank now, his words echoing down 200 years from the High Court in Edinburgh, is a telling experience. In proposing the only sentence possible he almost struggles for words to describe what everyone has heard in court.
0: Had one individual been found so utterly divested of all human feeling as to have been guilty of the offences brought here to light, your lordships might well have been amazed and horrified. But it is almost beyond conception to imagine that there should have existed in this great and populous city not one individual only, but apparently a number of individuals both male and female, leagued and combined together for the purpose of sacrificing their unoffending fellow citizens for the sordid purpose of selling their bodies after they have been murdered for a price. It is inexpressibly horrible, and to one feeling for the character of his country in the last degree humiliating. Your lordship's will, I believe search in vain through both the real and fabulous histories of crime for anything at all approaching this cold, hypocritical, calculating and bloody
4: murder.
1: The Lord Justice Clark then passes the death sentence on William Burke.
4: I am disposed to agree that your sentence shall be put in execution in the usual way. But accompanied with the statutory attendant... That your body should be publicly dissected and anatomized. And I trust that, if it is ever customary to preserve skeletons, yours will be preserved, in order that posterity may keep in remembrance your atrocious crimes. William Burke will be carried from here to the Tollbooth of Edinburgh, therein to be detained and to be fed upon bread and water only until Wednesday, the twenty eighth of January, next to come. And upon that day to be taken forth to the common place of execution in the lawn market of Edinburgh. And there between the hours of eight and ten o'clock before noon to be hanged by the neck by the hands of the common executioner upon a gibbet until you be dead. And your body thereafter to be delivered to Dr Alexander Munro, professor of anatomy in the University of Edinburgh, to be by him publicly Dissected and anatomized, and all your movable goods to be inbrought to His Majesty's use. All this is pronounced for doom, and may Almighty God have mercy on your soul. Oh, He's to hang. Let's wait for.
1: There is a myth that the 16 people murdered by William Hare and William Burke weren't missed, that they had no one to look out for them. That isn't true.
5: They killed my lad.
1: Jamie Wilson's mother and sister are immediately in contact with a lawyer and pursue an ultimately failed attempt to sue William Hare for damages in a civil court. And Janet Brown...
2: I was never called, was I?
1: Janet Brown... Mary Patterson's best friend who was with Mary when she fell in with the charming William Burke
2: I want to be heard
1: she's furious that she was never called to give evidence she wants to testify how she and Mary Patterson were preyed upon by Burke. the morning they were released from the police cells and wandered into a drinking den it's Thomas Galbraith the reporter from the Edinburgh Courant who bends an ear I'll listen, I'll write it down
4: I want my say
0: you'll have it
4: Are you peeing?
1: Ready to print. The news that Burke is to hang and be publicly dissected is front page news on the current.
0: And go.
1: More will follow when the paper prints Burke's detailed confession. It will inflame the angry crowds. We are moving temporarily. That is all. Just to be safe. The esteemed Dr Knox moves his family out of their home in Newington. At Tanner's Close, a crowd of people gathers outside Hare's lodging house, the scene of so many deaths. A crowd shoves its way into the murder room. Not intent on justice, though. Men and women break bits off the furniture as souvenirs. Some people will fashion dubious items from the plundered property, such as snuff boxes emblazoned with the words "This belongs to William Burke, Cobbler, Tanner's Close." There is soon a buoyant trade in fake ghoulish mementos. At Fountainbridge Police Station, Constable John Fisher looks up from the desk. Who can I help you?
2: I'm Michael Campbell. So. My mother is Maggie Dougherty. She was murdered by and Hare.
1: Mr Campbell. I'm I'm sorry. I was the investigating officer.
2: I don't know. I saw you in the courts. Do you know where she's buried?
1: Michael Campbell has led to a mass plot. A pauper's grave. There is no restitution. No crowdfunding. No rich philanthropist turning up to sort it and create a memorial to a woman brutally murdered for cash. There will be a memorial of a kind 200 years later. I've looked online. It's one of these find a grave sites. And I type in Maggy Docherty's name. No known grave. But underneath is a poignant message. You are my distant relative, and I have known about your cruel death from family stories handed down over many generations. I have tried to find out where you were finally laid to rest, but now I learn it appears, sadly, you are lost. On a cold afternoon just after Christmas 1828, the good John Fisher stands beside Maggie Doherty's son, who bows his head. I'm sorry, Mr. Campbell.
0: I wish I could have helped her.
2: She held me. She sang to me. My mum. They spoke about her as if she was nothing. The old woman. The old, murdered, drunken woman. She was always working so we could eat. When the hungry times came in Donegal, she went without just so we could fill our bellies. I went first. I was off away. She said she wouldn't be leaving. She was bound to Donegal and there she'd be staying. She believed things would get better, Mr. Fisher. They didn't. So she came here looking for me. She believed she was in God's hands. I wondered about God then. I wonder about God now. Where was He when this was happening? Hmm? I'm not clever. I don't have an answer.
0: Professor Monroe. Professor Monroe.
1: Alexander Monroe, whose students deserted him in favour of the flamboyant Doctor Knox, is suddenly thrust centre stage.
4: Uh, what is it? It's a court order for you. Uh, uh, well, I've done nothing. Uh, I wasn't involved No, it's an order
0: You have to dissect William Burke after his hanging It's to be a public event
4: Listen to this one Listen to him He was drinking with Burke
1: People come forward As they invariably do To claim a bit of the stage for themselves Like attention seekers on social media trying to outdo each other in their personal reaction to the death of a celebrity. Feigning closeness to events. I was drinking with him, and he put something in my glass.
4: They tried to smother me, but I kicked myself free and got out the window. And then? Buy me a drink, and I'll tell you.
0: Hey, 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 I knew him more.
1: In the condemned cell, William Burke is alone. Does he reflect on his actions? Does he even think of the misery he caused? My name is William Burke. You don't know me. I do know he is unlike his victims, because he can feel death approach. They didn't. And unlike them... He knows exactly when he is going to die. And he won't be doing it in a filthy room, smothered by bullies. He is going to die in the open air on a bright morning. There will be a huge crowd, some of whom will pay big money to watch. In the lawn market, close to St Giles Cathedral, the gallows are going up for the grand hanging of William Burke. There's great anticipation in the city. And anger, too. William Hare is off, free to live his life. His missus, Lucky Hare, is harried and beaten on the street, but vanishes. And Helen McDougall, William Burke's partner and co-accused, is seen and spat on in Edinburgh, along the Union Canal and in Glasgow, till she disappears from view. William Burke isn't going anywhere, apart from stepping onto a wooden platform being built and tested in the lawn market. And
4: go. Oh, sticking. Jump harder. Wilson, jump harder. i will hold you. Oh, Oh, it needs shaved.
1: Marching swiftly past the gallows are men, and it's mainly men, intent on maximising profit while the sentence is carried out.
2: Second floor, sir. Second floor.
0: This
1: one.
4: Wait now. I'm coming.
2: Yes?
1: Uh, My name's Alan McLean. I'd like a word, please.
2: Uh, What about it? You can't just push.
4: Shut the door, Thompson.
1: Rooms are commandeered for their views of the gallows.
0: that's my final offer. You move out the night before.
6: Where a last day. It's
1: not my concern. Now, if you don't mind, I need to get the chairs in. Which are then lined across windows. The bakers of Edinburgh, perhaps some of whom went out on the hunt for Dr Knox, are sweating at their hot ovens, making trayloads of bannocks and buns to sell on the morning of the hanging. The hawkers and street sellers pull on their best clothes in preparation for the baked day. And broadsides are written, some sentimental, and most of dubious origin. Like the lament by the mother of James Wilson. It's in the National Library of Scotland's digital collection, The Word on the Street.
4: Oh, my son, why did you wonder? Why so far away from home? It was love to me, your mother, caused you far to roam. O oh, ill-fated morning, that you sought your mother dear wandering through the grass market without dread or fear.
1: And so it goes, all adding to the excitement, the spectacle of the hanging of William Burke. Lisa Rosner, author of The Anatomy Murders.
5: It was a major event. We know stories from medical students who remembered it years later, who got to the site of the hanging at 4am to try to get a place and it was already crowded and the crowds continued to come throughout the morning. There's a broadsheet image of it that shows or purports to show Burke being hanged, but it actually was printed up in advance based on other hangings, showing all of the square entirely crowded and filled with people. And the reason why it was printed up in advance was that it could be sold on the day. So it's not really Burke that you're seeing in the tiny image um, hanging from the gallows. But it was absolutely packed. And one of the interesting things that was reported is that the Irish community really came out in force. And what they did was they set up a kind of a barrier between the rest of the crowd and the gallows, because they were afraid that what the Scottish crowd would do would be to come and grab the body after the hanging and carry it off and tear it to pieces. And so they were there to make sure that didn't happen, that he got a respectful hanging. And people not from the Irish community tried to get closer and closer. They kept being pushed back and warned off from getting any closer so that the people immediately surrounding the gallows might well have been Burke's friends, associates from the west port there to see that he at least got the full respect of the law and of course the, the full rights before his death.
1: The authorities are afraid the mob will rip him limb from limb, so he is spirited to the toll booth close to the gallows in the middle of the night. In the morning, William Burke is led out to his death. I can push myself to the front of the crowd, eager to see this man die. There are all kinds of people here. Rich, poor, tall, and short.
4: I can't see. Lift me up. Here he is.
1: I look up at the windows of the tenements. They're packed with people. The gallows are tall, the crowd is vast. There are shouts of block him, the technique Birk and Hare developed to leave no marks on a
0: body.
1: Owen Dudley Edwards, author of Birk and Hare, believes there were deep historical reasons for the size of the crowd filling the streets around the gallows.
3: 25,000 people watched Burke hang. Also, Burke, of course, was supposed to have his body taken round to be dissected, which was the usual rule whether you had been involved in a medical murder or not. So, from that point of view, Burke himself was certainly a prominent figure. But what caused the crowd was simply this. Okay, Burke had murdered 16 people, but he had done something much worse. He had violated the rules of hospitality. He had killed people who were under his protection. Now, this goes back thousands of years. It was always understood that if somebody was under your protection, as a guest or as a host, you had the absolute duty of not breaking faith in them. There's one reason, for example, why the massacre of Glencoe was so long remembered, because it was the hosts who were being murdered by the guests in whose honour they believed. Similarly, Burke himself had murdered people, therefore a crowd of 25,000 watched and screamed at him being hanged. And so he said his prayers at the same time with these yells in his ears. Normally that never happened. But in general, no, people watched the hangings and the miscreants were allowed to be hanged without too much interruption. Not in Burke's case. <laughs>
1: Hare and his wife have vanished. Helen MacDougall has disappeared. Burke is dead. And the good Dr Knox? What happens to him? The man who bought the bodies. The man who once said, the most innocent proceedings in the best-conducted dissecting room must always shock the public and be hurtful to science. His upwards trajectory is stymied. He has few friends and the knowledge of his involvement with Hare and Burke ensures he has even fewer now. His career peters out. He moves to London, carrying with him his repugnant views of the people he dissected and those who sold him the bodies.
3: Owen Dudley Edwards. Robert Knox was one of the most dangerous people who had ever lived. He was a great deal more dangerous than either Burke or Hare. He brought to what he believed to be a science the differences between the races of men. He had done extensive anatomical investigation in South Africa, in the aftermath of Waterloo, and in various other places, and believed he could classify the races and sought to do so. And he divided them into those which should be exterminated and those which should be allowed to live. In other words, he's the ancestor of Nazism and various other philosophies of that nature the philosophy that says that we only want to have the strong and the weak must be ultimately destroyed. Now, he included, obviously, black people, probably included Orientals. He ultimately came to the conclusion that the Irish Catholics ought to be exterminated too. Whether he believed this before he began to get corpses from Burke and Hare or only did so afterwards when he himself was overwhelmed by having proved to have been the recipient of the bodies they had murdered, um difficult to say. I guess it would have been that from the start he probably accepted the idea that the Irish Catholics are a degenerate figure who were w- worth exterminating. That would have meant, of course, that from his point of view, when you got bodies being sent up to him and you believed that these people ought to be exterminated anyway, they might as well do some good in their being exterminated and be there as edification for the students in order to teach the better.
1: And Lisa Rosner believes he is a pioneer for racism.
5: He was proud of being a racist. (laughs) There's no way to make his views palatable in the modern world. And and frankly, they were not particularly palatable in, in much of his own day. You know, he's known as a kind of a founder of 19th century racist ideology.
4: Just
1: uh,
3: stay stay in
1: line. That
3: that goes for you. Hey, you
1: you'll, you'll all see. A massive queue forms in the early morning for the public dissection of William Buck.
4: I won't be opening these doors until it's time when I do open them. There will be an orderly queue. Stop shoving I was here first. You're
2: behind me. Get back. Just be quiet.
0: Quiet.
4: The doors are now.
1: Open! It's not orderly, it's a rammy. It's Monroe, the plodder, who carries out the dissection. And someone faints at the sight of blood. Today, Burke's skeleton, stripped clean, hangs inside a glass case in Edinburgh. Janet Philp, of Edinburgh University and writer of the book Burke, Now and Then, is familiar with the killer's bones.
6: We're standing in the anatomical museum of the University of Edinburgh. That's on the top floor of the old medical school. And we're standing in front of the case that houses the skeleton of William Burke. When he was executed, the judge said that should it ever become customary, to keep skeletons, then his skeleton should be kept forever to remind people of his atrocious crimes.
1: And they do. Looking at him, you're aware how small William Burke is. It's a peculiar sensation, standing in front of this man, this killer, knowing what he's done.
6: We did a facial reconstruction of him. The overriding comments when you show that facial reconstruction to people are that can't be right because he doesn't look evil enough. He persuaded 16 people to come and drink with him, you know they were strangers to him and he persuaded them to come and spend the night, go back to his house, I mean he must have been
1: charming. Janet Philp wrote her book in an effort to correct some of the nonsense spoken about William Hare and William Burke.
6: We opened up the museum and people started coming to see William Burke and you would stand by that cabinet and people would tell you, you know, they would tell their friends these stories which just were complete rubbish. You know, the common idea that they robbed graves. I mean, you speak to most people, Burke and Hare robbed graves. And then, you know, you would hear stories about how they went on to develop the funeral industry, which is based on the Simon Pegg movie and all of these... Sorts of things. So, the idea behind writing the book was to do the research and get the true story out there.
1: So, not grave robbers. Not once. Not ever. Simply mass murderers. In the wake of the case, the public revulsion, and the global coverage of Burke's trial and its aftermath, The Anatomy Bill comes before the Westminster Parliament in 1832. Its aim is to prevent the trade in illegal bodies for dissection and allow doctors access to cadavers unclaimed after death.
0: The eyes to the right have it.
1: The Anatomy Act is passed. And almost 200 years on, what drew Lisa Rosner to the anatomy murders?
5: I did think that there must be more than had been told about the victims, and that's what I consider to be my main contribution to the story. I think a lot of the rest of my work, it was a great deal to many, many other scholars, and I very gratefully acknowledge that. But I wanted to restore as best I could who the victims were, why they found themselves in the positions that they did, and see if I followed their story, what it would tell me, not only about the murders, but about anatomical practices, about attitudes towards medicine, about attitudes towards women, marginal people in Edinburgh in this period. And I really do feel as if excavating that side of life in Edinburgh, the parts, the parts below The parts in the grass market, the parts in the wines, the parts in the narrow closes and streets that have vanished. But thanks to the wonderful Edinburgh archives, you can recreate these people. They're not, as the literati said of the day, people who would never be missed or people who we'd never find out anything about. They were real people. They had real lives.
1: Owen Dudley Edwards is crystal clear why William Burke and William Hare remain in the public imagination. Because of the fact
3: that Burke and Hare represented doctors, represented medical research, represented the horrifying thought that medical research could mean the death of the poor to enrich the rich and give them the chance of survival so that the rich could survive, the poor would die. And from that point of view, therefore, Burke and Hare became nightmare figures almost children nursery rhyme figures and very quickly took their place within that sort of imaginary chamber of horrors. Up the close and down the stair, button ban with Burke and Hare. Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief, knocks the boy that buys the beef.
1: William Burke and William Hare remain bogeymen. Monsters. They're coming to get you. I set out on this road with my producer Bruce Young because we wanted to go back to the original trial and also because we wanted to tell something of the lives of the victims of these cruel and violent bullies who killed for cash. The three victims we looked at Maggie Docherty, Mary Patterson, James Wilson, were born and lived in hard times. In a kinder world, they might never have come across William Burke or William Hare. I have thought these past few weeks, what if these three had taken a different turn in the road, in a sliding doors way? Mary Patterson gets out of the police cells and stepping off a pavement is snatched to safety from the galloping hooves of a runaway horse. It's a gentleman who holds her, like a Dickensian character, and in an instant he sees her for what she is, a young woman full of vim and vigour and life. Will you come with me, he asks. And she says, Aye, I will. And she steps gracefully into the life she could have had, a life of Bright lit rooms and warmth and love and she grows old with her man and they have babies and grandchildren and she is good and happy and that, dear listener, is how her story ends. Does James Wilson become a financial whiz kid? Using his God-given talent with memory and numbers to blossom in the banking industry. Jazz, they call him, not Jamie. He has a home in the posh Newtown. And his mum and his sister and his best pal, Bobby, live with him. And Maggie Docherty. A kind hawker finds her sleeping in a field. He gives her a lift in his cart to Edinburgh. And she arrives a day early, just in time to find her son, Michael, in the Cowgate. And they hug for life. They are overjoyed to find each other. Maggie never enters the grass market and she doesn't have to beg and she doesn't meet her killer, William Burke. I know that all this is wishful thinking on my part. My need, as an unreconstructed romantic, to find the best for these people in the darkest of circumstances. I wanted to shine a small light in that darkness, illuminating them and the other victims of William Burke and William Hare. I go sometimes to the top of Allermuir, one of the Pentland hills just to the south of Edinburgh. When you stand there, the whole city is laid out before you. I've needed to be there sometimes during my examination of the case of William Burke and William Hare. Away from the dark, the killing and the monstrosity of what these two men and two women did for money. It's airy up on Allermuir. Edinburgh looks benevolent in the sunshine. I go there to remember the people who died. Some I only know their first names, others just their occupation. But the three I have got to know, I say their full names. Maggie Docherty, Mary Patterson, James Wilson. I remember them. An Eye for a Killing is a BBC Scotland production, written and dramatised by Colin Macdonald and presented by Jack Loudon, featuring the voices of Gavin Mitchell, Paul Young, Simon Donaldson, Nicola Roy, Lucianne McAvoy, Andy Clark, Robert Jack, James Rocker. The producer is Bruce Young.